welcome to risk roundup internal combustion engines electricity and semiconductors driven industrial revolutions have brought fundamental transformation to the rate of economic growth for nations in the last 150 years as artificial intelligence driven automation also brings the potential of fundamental transformation in the ways that was not thought possible across cyberspace geospace and space until now the world's economic output that has doubled every 15 years is now expected to double at least quarterly and perhaps even on a weekly basis as seen across nations ai that means artificial intelligence is already being deployed in the production of many goods and services in the coming years ai may also change the process by which we create new ideas innovations and technologies this will perhaps help us solve complex problems facing nations in cyberspace geospace space and beyond since an ever increasing number of tasks previously performed by human labor for production of goods and services becomes automated the economic growth will likely continue to impact the division of income between labor and capital so as we evaluate the potential of ai becoming self improving and leading to singularity it is important to evaluate where the impact of limitless machine intelligence and or limitless economic growth in finite time is taking humanity to discuss ai driven economic singularity further i'm delighted to welcome kalam chase to riskrandup kalam is the author of the books the two singularities the economic singularity and surviving ai he lives in england as well as spain welcome kalam we are honored to have you on riskrandup thank you very much it's a pleasure to be here wonderful kalam so economic progress has always been driven by some sort of automation the previous industrial revolutions used steam and then electricity to automate many production processes after that relays and transistors and semiconductors continued this trend of automation now as we see ai has begun to increase automation in the production of goods and services across nations now as we look towards the future it is not just the ai but 3d printing techniques and nanotechnology nano molecular manufacturing that allows production to start at the molecular or even atomic level could someday automate all manufacturing so as all these technologies individually and collectively increase automation in the production of goods and services where is the technology driven automation taking us well you've laid out a very comprehensive view of what's happening where it's taking us to i think as you referred to in passing is is the singularity usually referred to as the technological singularity uh when we create a machine with all the cognitive abilities of an adult human that's quite a long way off um nobody knows for sure that it will definitely happen nobody can be certain it will happen and we certainly don't know how long um best guess seems to be somewhere between 50 and 100 years it might be more might be less but i think that before that there's going to be another singularity the economic singularity now the word singularity has a bad rep in some some um quarters um it's associated with the idea of the rapture of the nerds but it's actually a very good metaphor for what is coming for the changes that are coming because a singularity is a concept borrowed from math and physics and it's a point in a process where a variable becomes infinite 
And the classic example is a black hole. At the center of a black hole, the gravitational field becomes infinite. What happens then is that the rules of physics just stop working. And also, there's an event horizon, which means it's very hard to see beyond that point. It's very hard to see what happens next. So it's a great metaphor, I think, for the, the two big changes that are coming. It's, uh, it, it denotes a change which is bigger than a revolution. It's bigger than disruption. It's the biggest kind of change you can have. So the technological singularity, the arrival of AGI, artificial general intelligence, and then superintelligence, that is obviously a singularity because that is going to be the biggest change ever to happen to humanity. The singularity, I think that we're going to see before that, the economic singularity is the point when we have to accept uh, that most humans, quite possibly almost all humans, won't be able to do a job for a living because anything that humans can do for money can be done cheaper, better and faster by a machine. And if we're smart and perhaps a bit lucky, we can have a tremendous result from that, a tremendous outcome. We could finally have, after all the false promises, the leisure society where machines do all the work or do all the jobs rather, and humans do work uh, because humans will always have projects and things that they want to do. They just won't get paid for them, but they will do whatever they want to do. So if their project at the time is to become the best golfer that they can become, then that's what they do. If their project at the time is to watch all the Humphrey Bogart movies end to end, then that's what they do. If they want to circumnavigate the world in a bathtub, then that's what they do. And I think we could have a second renaissance. Um, but certainly the world is going to be very different. If and, and again, we don't know for sure this is going to happen and we don't know when it will happen if it does. But if the if we get to the point where machines do all the jobs, then it's going to be a very, very different world. And, and um, navigating that successfully is not straightforward. Yes, very true. It is not going to be straightforward. And humans have been used to working. In return of their work, they are used to getting their wages. And that gives them sort of a uh, lot of satisfaction. So what the question is, you know, as we move forward with all these automation and in a lot of processes can be automated, what happens if everything can be automated? That is, if people and processes can be replaced by AI, and as I, you know, we just discussed, manufacturing gets replaced by molecular manufacturing or synthetic biology, and you know, so many more advances that are happening. So, if everything gets automated, what would economic growth look like? across nations, because each nation has a very different economic structure. Each nation has different industries, different, you know, way they are doing things. So what will it, I mean, uh, by the time we reach singularity, uh, technological singularity, AI singularity, and before that, as you said, we will reach economic singularity. So how is this economic singularity going to look across nations because each nation has a different economic structure and economic growth at this point. Well, that's not going to change. Countries will vary culturally and economically. But in many ways, we are now most almost all parts of the world in broadly speaking, one type of economy. I mean, the Chinese run capitalism different from the way the Russians run it, and they run it differently from the way the Americans who run it differently from the way the Europeans do. But we broadly share a lot of the, the same principles in the way we operate, you know, um, joint stock companies, and um, you have to have the rule of law, more or less, <laughs> in, as a framework in which companies operate. And as a result of that, when a technological advance happens, it spreads around the world quite fast. 
A great example is a smartphone, which although we've had mobile phones for quite a while, and you could argue there were smartphones before the iPhone, the smartphone really got going with the invention of the iPhone in, in uh, 2007. And so it's 11 years old. And in that short time, it's gone around the world. If you go to a, a train station in Nairobi, everybody on the platform is glued to their smartphone, just like they are in New York and London. Um, and so as and when it becomes possible to automate transportation and call centers and warehouses, that's going to go around the world really fast. Obviously, places where um, human labor is a lot cheaper, it might take a bit longer because the, the machines have to get cheaper than they do in the West uh, in order to replace the humans. But you know the, the, that, that gap won't be very long. So it'll, it'll go around the world quite fast. You, you said something in passing just then about what uh, will, will the humans be replaced? And I think we need to be wary of that idea. Humans won't be replaced. Humans are the only um, entity on this planet who have what we would regard as being a sort of a full spectrum of consciousness. Dogs and cats and chickens and maybe to some extent earthworms have some level of consciousness, but we have a broader spectrum of consciousness than they do. And critically, machines don't have any. I mean, there are one or two uh, radical scientists who think that computers can already detect optical illusions or rather be subject to optical illusions, which suggests that they have a consciousness. I really hope that's not true because if it is true, we are probably crit cr we are probably committing mind crime on a massive scale by having these poor computers go through the most boring spreadsheets over and over and over again. So let's, let's, let's um, stick with the mainstream view that computers don't have any consciousness and they won't until at least until the technological singularity. So up until that point, humans won't be replaced because we have this thing that's unique, this consciousness thing, which we think is what gives value to life. Um, a life with no consciousness is, is pretty much a worthless life. So that's not going to be replaced. In fact, I'd argue that the economic singularity could enhance it because if we do get this leisure society, then people could get to... Um, to, to flourish to their fullest capacity. Yes, very true. No, I'm glad that you uh, made that, uh, you clarified that uh, point that, you know, I just made because I, at this point, I do not think, you know, we have reached the singularity, AI singularity. It is way, you know, far from us, you know, maybe, you know, several decades. And what I meant is replacing, when I said humans, replacing humans, it's replacing human as a workforce. Because as we are creating machine workforce, we are replacing human workforce. So that's what I meant. But I'm glad that you clarified. Now, well, the question of whether humanity will survive when we reach that technological singularity with the A, as we see, I mean, that still needs to be seen and discussed and debated. And then we have to evaluate whether we want to go that path where, you know, humans could be replaced as, you know, AI someday, you know, will... Uh, at this point, AI needs to be charged and that needs to, they depend on electricity. Now, when that dependency, you know, is gone and when AI figures out on its own, whether they can, you know, charge themselves, you know, they can create some uh, technology to charge, you know, uh, them themselves using solar energy or whatever technology they create that at that point there is a risk of existential risk to humanity but at the, we that is still you know so many decades away and we still uh, 
can use our human intelligence and collective machine intelligence to figure out that how we can prevent those scenarios. But at this point, the bigger question is with the AI competition heating up, will nations survive the AI warfare? And are nations decision makers fit to drive the future of AI technology and singularity? As you know, the economic singularity becomes a bigger you know, question and bigger you know, concern and problem all across nations. Um, I don't think nation states are the unit which will solve these problems or, or, or help us rise to the challenges. I think uh, we need to get better at collaborating internationally. The way to survive and indeed thrive through the economic singularity, I, th I think, is uh, by dematerializing and demonetizing the economy, mostly, not, not entirely, so that all the goods and services that you need for a very, very good standard of living become really, really cheap. And that way, the people who aren't, in, aren't employed, which will be most of us, uh, can be provided with that, that access to goods and services without taxing the people with the assets and the people who are still working, without taxing those people punitively. Um, now, that economic progress will happen, if, it, if it's going to happen, it will happen around the world probably more or less in sync. Some countries will be uh, ahead and others will be behind, but it'll happen more or less in sync. Nations are entities that people have feel a very strong sense of loyalty towards. Um, they're relatively new, really. I mean, they only became powerful after the Treaty of Westphalia, which I think was in the 17th century, maybe the 18th, uh, 16th. Um, and Prior to that, people had loyalty to smaller units and occasionally to larger units like the Roman Empire. Um, but as long as people feel loyalty to them, then they're a, a, a useful organizational unit, but they're not the unit to solve the great challenges of the singularities. Um, those, those, those ideas will generate from individuals and from small groups, and they'll be implemented in on much larger canvases. But that's okay because people can be loyal to all sorts of different levels of organization. We're all loyal to our family, uh, to our friendship group, to our region, to our nation, to our continent, perhaps. Uh, and, you know, you'd hope that most of us have, have some loyalty to the species. And these loyalties don't necessarily conflict. Sometimes they will, but oftentimes they won't. And I think the big challenges will probably be solved species-wide. Yes, yes, uh, let's hope so. And uh, you are right that as we move towards participatory collaborative economy, it is, you know, each individual that can uh, provide their input and make a difference and in trying the world's, you know, humanity's biggest uh, problems that we are facing or will be facing in the coming years. Now, if the future of humanity were to depend on human intelligence and machine intelligence or collective human intelligence and collective machine intelligence and had the capabilities of crunching numbers faster than any previous machine or human, how long do you think it will take before money itself and the current economic system becomes obsolete? Well, who knows? Uh, one of the reasons for using the term singularity is because of this event horizon. It's really hard to imagine what the world will be like when most humans are not in jobs, just like it's really hard to imagine what the world will be like once we have an entity on this planet that is much smarter than the smartest human who ever lived and is getting more, uh, is getting more smart, you know, day by day. Um, so 
it, it's very hard to understand. But um, what it could be like is is really quite wonderful. If if uh, as I say, if if all the jobs that people used to do are taken over by machines and humans don't have to do them anymore, that could be very liberating because although going to work gives most people a reason to get up in the morning and it, it fills their day and often sort of tires them enough so that they sort of think they've had a full day's life by the end of the day. It doesn't provide meaning to all that many people. Gallup did a survey a couple of years ago which revealed that only 8% of people around the world, and it was fairly consistent around the world, really enjoy their jobs and really think that they get meaning from their jobs. If you are an Amazon delivery driver, or if you dig up holes in the road, or if you work in a warehouse, and I've done some of these jobs myself, so I know what they're like, you don't necessarily get much meaning from, from those activities. And I think an awful lot of people, if they were liberated from those activities and didn't have to do them, they'd feel quite happy about that. No, I, I, I hear you on that. And it all depends on, it would be liberating provided that the governments, nations are able to put together a economic structure that benefits all, each and every individual financially, that they will not have to worry about how they will uh, make their living. You know, They don't have to worry about the living. If we are able to put together that effective structure, then you know it will be liberating. If nations are not able to put together that kind of uh, incentive structure, then it's going to be many complex and chaotic challenges that are coming our way, our way because since work is the foundation of human society and everything else that we value or treasure or dream of, take for granted and worry about is based on human ability to work. If the traditional model of work falls apart, I think there is there are many other things in the society that will fall apart. What do you, if the, provided that if the governments are not able to come together, if the decision makers of each and every nation, its government or industries or you know, organizations, academia, they're not able to come up with an effective structure of you know, how the humans, will you know be provided for what do you see for what do you think will be falling apart for human society if nations decision makers cannot come together and uh, come up with an effective structure so there's two separate things you're referring to one is um i think one is meaning you talked about work being the source of the things that we all value and i don't really think that's true um like i say i think if if machines if we if we end up and Let's be clear, we do not know this is what's going to happen, but personally, I think it will. If we end up in a world where machines do almost all the jobs or most of the jobs, so humans, most humans cannot get a job, cannot get paid for doing it, for doing a job. Um, I don't think that means that those people's lives will fall apart. And there's a couple of classes of people who I think are very good um, exemplars or proofs of this. One is people who are comfortably retired. Um, I'm of an age where a lot, a lot of my friends and contemporaries are retired, and many of them have got you know good pension arrangements, and they're very happy. They're not bored. Uh, they look back at their lives and they wonder how on earth they managed to fit in a, a job uh, alongside all the things that they do: spending time with their family, uh, organising dinner parties and bridge parties and festivals and travelling around the world. Um, so comfortably retired people, I think, demonstrate fairly clearly you do not have to have a job to have meaning in your life. And the other group of people who also, I think, prove it are aristocrats. 
in Europe, at least for centuries, we've had aristocrats. And some of them ran their estates. Um, some of them ran countries or even empires if they came from the right country. But most of them didn't have jobs. And there wasn't a, a tidal wave of existential despair among aristocrats. They got along just fine. They had the best lives of anybody in their society. So I don't buy the idea that you have to have a job to have meaning in your life. Uh, there will be a lot of people who find themselves bereft if they don't have a job. Um, Lots of people have been trained their whole lives to look for the next hoop, jump through it. Look for the next hoop after that, jump through it. And they will wonder what to do with themselves. I think they will quite quickly find fun things to do. And they will work. You know, they will organize. They'll carry on organizing festivals and carry on organizing conferences and giving talks and things. Um, so I'm not too worried about meaning. The, the thing I do worry about is, is how do we provide the good standard of living if everybody's not doing a job? And, but but I think that problem will also, will solve itself by the the logic of economic and technological development, um, because I think the economy will be dematerialized de and demonetized largely, not entirely, uh, as 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 a natural consequence of the development of technology. And and the music industry is a good example. When I was young, it was impossible for anybody, however rich to be able to listen to all the music that they might ever want to listen to. You had to be really selective in what you bought because you had to buy a funny piece of black plastic and then later on a, a, a CD. And now my 17-year-old son knows nothing of this limitation. He can listen to whatever music he wants, whenever he wants, and it costs £10 a month. Music has been demonetized. And that's not been terribly helpful for a lot of artists. Um, it's harder for artists to make money, although you know many still are, and artists also make money by doing live appearances and so on and selling merchandise. So music has, has been dematerialized, and I think all many, many if not all parts of the economy can go the same, same way. And that has to happen if we're going to get the prices of, of goods and services down close to zero, which is the only way I think we'll be able to afford to pay for everybody to have a really good access have really good access to all the goods and services that you need. I don't think we want to get the prices of everything down to zero, and it's probably not possible to, because I don't think we actually want to do away with money. And quite possibly, we don't want to do away with capitalism, uh, because um, the market is a very good mechanism for allocating resources. It forces people to be honest about what they want, because they have to pay for it with their, with their own money. And so it makes it easier for the pr productive parts of the economy to decide what is the right thing to make and, and make the right decision. Unlike, say, a communist system where a bureaucrat makes those decisions and almost inevitably gets them wildly wrong, almost inevitably. Um, the thing that worries me is it's going to take a while. It's going to take time for all sections of the economy to dematerialize and demonetize. And it may not be obvious to everybody that it's going to happen. And what might become obvious first is that widespread lasting unemployment is going to happen. So if those two things are out of sync, we might get a really bad panic. And this is the thing that worries me. I think self-driving cars will probably be the canary in the coal mine. They are phenomenally smart robots driving vehicles around. Now, you have to be 17 years old in this country at least, to start learning to drive a car. It's not a trivial thing to do. And the fact that cars, the fact that 
AIs can now do that better than we can. Demonstrably, they can already do it better than we can. It's quite remarkable. And when there are lots of them driving around and lots of taxi drivers and truck drivers have already lost their jobs, everybody's going to realize, wow, you know, these machines are very smart. They're getting smarter all the time. <clears throat> they will take my job before long. Whether I'm a plumber or work in a warehouse or I'm a, an accountant or a journalist, they're going to take my job. At that point, unless there is a clear path, a clearly understood and generally agreed path to uh, what, what's often called the economy of rad radical abundance, then there will be a panic. And that panic could be very dangerous. We could elect populist politicians who say, don't worry, whatever happens, I will make sure there's law and order. I will make sure there's loads of jobs. I will make sure nothing goes wrong. And they're going to have to start shooting people quite quickly. And, you know, I, I think things could get very nasty. So we have to avoid that panic. That's the thing that keeps me up at night. That, so I think we need a lot of analysis, a lot of imagination to go into the task of figuring out, is this economy of radical abundance possible? Is it likely that it's going to be what will happen? And if so, can we chart a course from here to there and make it credible for everybody? Can we establish a conventional wisdom that that's what's going to happen? Because I think that is the only way that we avoid the panic. Sure. I mean, uh, the, I, I hear your point, but uh, I, I, I think a little differently on this topic about meaning of life. Because if you just get free money every month, you know, that you don't have to worry about earning a living, then I think you lose the purpose. What, what do you wake up for in the morning? So uh, we have seen, uh, you know, over the years, I mean, there are some civilizations where there was a lot of abundance. You know, they, the citizens of those countries, they never had to worry about the money and they were so prosperous and they lost the meaning of life. They lost the purpose. And then, you know, the civilizations went down. So I, I personally feel that, you know, if we don't bring meaning to individuals' life and if we don't give them a purpose, then, you know, it, then we are going to face much bigger problems because they don't have to worry about money. They don't have to worry about living. And as you said, we will we are moving towards the age of abundance and we are moving away from ages, age of scarcity. So the whole mindset, the whole culture, the way the society is structured, if it changes, if it moves towards, you know, the age of abundance, then there is a lot that needs to be changed because what will be, you know, do for you know each and every individual to be driven every morning to do something meaningful with their lives there are you know a lot of people who have you know already found that purpose and you know who will not need that kind of guidance but the the most of the population across nations they are very dependent they are they have a lot of dependencies so unless we give that you know mass population some purpose some you know meaning to wake up in the morning to do something meaningful i think you know society is going towards much bigger complex problems the abundance that we are creating will be worthless you know if we don't give meaning to each and every individual each and every human and as there is an ongoing debate about this collectivism versus individualism and integration versus fragmentation i think you know what we need to evaluate is whether we see nations, whether we say societies work together through a sense of collective responsibility, 
for not only the future of the world, but also for the future of humanity and make sure that no human is left behind. Do you see us, you know, be able to work collectively? Because as you see across nations, you know, no governments are able to work together. You know, most of the people are not able to work together. There are so many cultural differences, so many, you know, conflicts that we see across nations. So for us to, you know, work together collectively as a humanity, you know, to solve all these, you know, bigger problems that are coming over me, I think it's a very complex challenge. Um, yeah, I, I can see I'm not going to persuade you, but um, I'll just remind you of those two groups of people who I think show you do not have to have a job to have meaning. The retired, the comfortably retired people and, and the aristocrats. There was, you know, there's a lot of people in those categories. They don't have jobs and they don't lack meaning in their lives. And I, I think they are a model for all of us. And the retired people have actually had a serious disadvantage in find meaning in their lives without jobs because they've spent 30 to 40 years looking for the hoop, jumping through the hoop, working very hard, being told by somebody else what to do most of the time. And suddenly, after all that time, after all that intense training, day by day, over and over and over, they suddenly get told, right, now you're free. Now you go and find your own meaning. And like I say, you know, I, I, in, in, in the retired people I know, I do not see a, uh, an, an epidemic of existential despair. They're busy, they're happy, uh, and, they're, and they're pretty fulfilled. And another example is, you know, when we go on holiday, some people on holiday go to a beach and just lie there and perhaps have the odd drink and become a vegetable for a week. Some people do that, but most people don't. Most people take the kids and go and explore a castle or, you know, go off on a romantic interlude to the Bahamas or something. Um, we explore, we do stuff. And that's what humans are like. We're not suddenly going to turn into vegetables just because we haven't got jobs. Uh, I think that, you know, we will find useful things to do. And I don't, I actually don't like the idea that we need to give meaning to other people. People will find their own meaning. I find my own meaning in life. You find your own meaning. You don't want some bureaucrat or some businessman or businesswoman to come along and tell you, Jayshree, this is the meaning you're going to have in your life now. You'd really resent that, and rightly so. You will find your own meaning. And you may be the sort of person who has to be busy. Lots of us are like that. I'm, I'm, I'm actually retired, although you know I've sort of stumbled into a new career, which I'm very much enjoying. So I'm very busy, quite possibly busier than I ever was before because I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing. The minute I stop enjoying this, I'm going to stop. I'm a bit like a football player in the sense that, you know, football players often have way more than enough money than they need. They carry on playing football because they really enjoy it, because they've got more challenges that they want to, uh, that they want to rise to. And I think that's a great model. I think we can all be like that. If we can solve the income problem and if we can avoid the panic, well, it, the question comes down to inner drive. People like you and I probably have inner drive, but not everyone has that inner drive and not everyone is fortunate you know, enough to find the purpose or meaning of life. So there are going to be, I, I see that there are going to be a lot of complex challenges, but I hope that you are right. And I hope that we don't have to worry about those kind of you know problems. But in a world where technology change is constant and unpredictable, we will need, you know, some organizations or some people or some, you know, sort of structure 
to lead and we, to so that we can effectively go through these kind of transitions and changes or complex you know uh, problems that are coming our way so societal problems you know financial problem will be able to probably uh, overcome you know if we put together uh, good in economic uh, infrastructure across nations but societal structure cultural and you know uh, many other problems that are coming our way we will have to come up with effective organizations that can drive i mean we don't need bureaucrats of course you know i would never uh, recommend something like that those kind of structures but do you see that we have effective organizations that can help nations lead through this kind of you know uh, very turbulent time that uh, they are going through well look all organizations are run by humans and so that they they are flawed you know humans are not perfect so we all make mistakes and anybody running an organization whether it's a government or a company or a, an army is going to make mistakes um but i think we give ourselves a bad rap you know there's 7 billion of us on the planet and although there are some very nasty wars going on and people doing brutal things to each other from time to time by and large humans get on with each other and we do collaborate pretty well the world is um the, the world economy is kept going by trading relationships which evolve and take quite a lot of time and effort to construct and they carry on and you know the the number of trade agreements that are around the world is is astonishing it's it's a hugely complicated lattice of of relationships which endures and airplanes fly around the world and they don't keep falling out of the sky and hospitals keep saving people not always but they you know they keep going and they keep saving people we actually do pretty well we we're a bit hard on ourselves as a species um we often think that we're terribly violent and we disagree all the time actually there isn't another carnivorous species because we are mostly of us carnivores which can gather more than say a dozen members of its species in a small area at the same time without killing each other if you've got a you know i often say to to audiences if there's sort of a few hundred people in a room i said if you were all substituted by wolves you'd all be dead within 5 minutes or at least you know almost all of you there'd be there'd be a few bedraggled survivors running around trying to kill each other um whereas humans we can get millions of us inside a city and although we've never met we've no particular reason to trust each other we just walk past each other sometimes say hello sometimes don't and it all seems to work quite well so you know we're not that bad at at uh, at getting along now there are going to be bigger and bigger challenges we've had lots of challenges throughout our history and they they're, they're not going to go away um and we have to resolve them we have to agree what level of privacy we want we have to agree what level of transparency the algorithms that will increasingly run our lives have we have to agree do we all own our data or does somebody else own it do we have to share it or can we um keep it back uh, and th there are pros and cons on both sides of all of these arguments we're going to have to keep debating this and arguing about it and it's a messy process we muddle through and we will come to some sort of arrangement and it will be different slightly in different jurisdictions but it'll probably uh converge to one sort of broad agreement about how you run these things big issues hard to resolve it's going to take time the process won't be perfect because we're not but there's a good chance it will work out okay Oh, I, I agree with you on that. There is no disagreement here because I I do see that each and every individual they want peace. They are at you know they don't want conflict. They want to uh, collaborate. They want to cooperate. And I think that's more the reason that as we move towards 
this new economy of abundance, I, I think decentralization is going to play a very important role. And I, I think it's going to play become very important that we create this blockchain-based, you know, digital infrastructure so that each and every human being on, you know, across, irrespective of whichever nation they live in, that they are able to participate on that, that they are, you know, having their presence, their voice heard, and that, you know, the collective intelligence that we develop through this decentralized you know economy that's emerging and the decentralized platform that we are developing through blockchain that we will be able to you know come together we'll be able to solve many many complex problems do you uh, see that you know that that is a decentralized platform is going to be very essential in the coming years yeah probably i think nobody knows yet what the blockchain will be useful for it at the moment it certainly isn't useful for doing uh, financial transactions um, on, a, on a broad base but it undoubtedly will be very important for something, and it might well be the bedrock of of a new economy at some point. It might be the first killer app for the block, for blockchain is to enable politicians to validate that they made a particular video. Uh, we already have deep fake videos where you can get President Trump or Obama to say whatever you like, whatever you want them to say. And it's impossible to tell, looking at those videos, that they didn't say it. The voices aren't very good yet, so they're not completely convincing. But that will get sorted out in the next few years. And so it's quite likely that within 10 years, quite possibly within five, you'd, you'd listen to a video of Trump saying something, and you would not be able to know if he really said it or not. Particularly given Trump, he says some quite extraordinary things. So it might be that the blockchain is the way that um, you can be sure that this is actually something he said. This is a real recording of him and not a deep fake. That might turn out to be the first killer app. <laughs> well, I, I, I hear you on that. Now, I think artificial intelligence is both the destroyer, is going to be both the destroyer as well as the creator of wealth and human civilization. We all need to make sure and we all need to make the conscious effort to address the disruptions that are about to occur and that are, you know, about to come our way. And the great challenge of our time is to manage the transition. Having said that, what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners, and especially those young minds who are trying to make a difference and who are very passionate about solving the bigger, you know, complex problems facing not only their nation, but facing humanity. And especially what would you like to tell them about your books? Okay. So the things I would really like to, um, persuade young people of is firstly they've had the great good fortune to be born at the best the most interesting and the most important time in the whole of human history so uh, they've made a very good choice about the time that they've been born uh, it's the best time to be human because we live longer we are actually happier although a lot of people think that's not true uh, we don't die in childbirth women don't die in childbirth we're more literate um, and so on and so on. on on any metric human life is better now than it's ever been and it's continuing to get better. Um, but because of these enormous revolutions, these singularities that we're heading towards, it's gonna get even more interesting and even better as long as we meet the challenges. It's very important that people believe, because it's true, that, that life is good now and it can get a lot better. 
we can have a wonderful future. It's important not to think, oh, crikey, AI is going to turn into the Terminator and kill us all, or uh, you know, algorithms are going to take over and uh, steal our privacy and it's all going to be gloom and doom and disasters. That, that's not true. Um, it's also very important that young people particularly take the time to inform themselves as much as they can about what is happening. It, the, the changes are not obvious. And an awful lot of it boils down to exponential growth in the technology. Moore's law has not died. It's not dying. It's basic um, meaning that machines get twice as good every 18 months or so is, is true today. It will almost certainly be true in 10 years time. And that is what's driving the phenomenal changes. The, the power of exponential growth is always surprising and you're always at the beginning of, beginning of it. So it's important people get a, get their heads around how important that is and how powerful it is so that they can believe in the scale of the changes that are coming. So big changes are coming. They can have absolutely wonderful outcomes. and um, But, but those, own, those, outcome, those wonderful outcomes will only happen if we rise to the challenges. As regards my books, um, you know, I've written one on each of the singularities, Surviving AI about the technological singularity about superintelligence, the, the economic singularity, unsurprisingly, is about the economic singularity. Um, I think they're a good introduction to the whole area and the issues that, that we're heading into. Not really for me to say, but I, I, I recommend them to people. <laughs> no, wonderful. And you give excellent advice. Get informed. I think that is going to be so very essential in the coming years. So thank you so much, Karen, for participating in Risk Roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on the much needed thought leadership on technological singularity, the emerging new AI economy, and the resulting economic singularity. So our global viewers and listeners will benefit tremendously from the information you provided on AI-driven economic singularity and the future of humanity. So even if a single individual or entity can come up with an idea to prevent the imminent, according to some, I don't agree to that, existential security risk emerging from not only the technological singularity, but the resulting economic singularity based on the understanding they received from the discussion we had today, this risk round of dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that. You're very welcome. It's been fun. Wonderful. So Risk Roundup, a global initiative launched by Risk Group, is a security risk reporting for risk emerging from existing and emerging technologies, technology convergence and transformation happening across cyberspace, geospace and space. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security and peace, they walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, Risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risks together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk roundup webcast or hear the risk roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.